Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with representatives of a global multi-stakeholder community. And I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm talking with Jennifer Woodard. Woodard. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Fritz. Allow me to introduce Jennifer. Uh, you are a global uh, communications thought leader on AI and counterterrorism, advisory board member of the Global Legal Tech Hub, co-founder of uh, Dia Etica, and founding partner of Insight Intelligence. Now, you used to work uh, with the European Commission. Uh, you come from San Francisco, live in Barcelona, and today uh, you, you spread the news. You have been nominated on the expert board of Ceres, the Community for European Research and Innovation for Security. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So the topic of today is AI, public safety, counterterrorism. Now, so that means AI can go both ways. We're going to have, we're going to have uh, look at two sides of the, of the coin, how AI is a threat and how AI is an opportunity. What's it predominantly in your mind, a threat or an opportunity? I think it's an opportunity, um, definitely. So uh, AI threats are definitely emerging and AI will have to be employed to uh, to basically uh, mitigate those threats. But it's definitely an opportunity for the current threats that we have. So everything from, uh, we work in the online space, everything from terrorism, radicalization, disinformation, uh, other types of crime, human trafficking, child exploitation, all of those things can be mitigated using AI tools. Okay. Um, and uh, you are um, a founding uh, partner. I mean, I want to go into give you a little bit of more context for the people who do not know you yet. Um, sure. uh, of uh, uh, Dryactica, which is an NGO, I understand. Yes, it is. Can you explain me a little bit what your purpose is? Yes, so we established Audio Etica because uh, in working in the security research field, we understood that there wasn't this perfect melange or perfect triangulation of all of the stakeholders that should be involved in order to uh, fully kind of capitalize on the use of technologies and the ethical use of technologies in security. So what we wanted to do was bring together all of the stakeholders, law enforcement agencies, researchers, uh, AI innovators and developers, and uh, any sort of uh, public entities as well, in order to understand not only the opportunities of the use of emerging technologies for the defeat of crime and terrorism, but also what are the ethical implications. So obviously there are a lot of ethical implications that some people uh, might overblow them at times and some some people might not even be aware that there are any. So bringing all of those stakeholders together was was basically the goal. Okay. Um, who are uh, missing in that discussion? I can assume everybody wants to be there, but uh, who do you feel you needed to, to bring into that discussion? I think, I mean, there's always been, actually speaking from our experience, so we're speaking from the point of view of being both researchers and uh, AI developers, we come into contact a lot with law enforcement agencies, but it's not something that naturally happens. It happens in the course of kind of research projects or collaborations. So they were they are definitely missing, I guess, as kind of at, at a larger scale, right? 
and uh, civil society and 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 just kind of citizens are are missing from the conversation. There are definitely civil society uh, organizations that are trying to work on this, but they are working on it from the point of view of uh, AI being uh, kind of a scary thing and the ethical and and privacy uh, uh, dimension of things. So also kind of bringing them into the conversation, understanding what their concerns are, and then uh, kind of related to that is basically the public at large. So the public tends to hear a lot about, oh, you know, AI is used for nefarious purposes by the police, um, letting them know that there are actually some really good benefits from using AI for policing and security was also important. Okay. Because uh, I want to touch on uh, your mission is to, to support the trust and transparency in AI for the um, security sector. Correct. To what extent is that, a, I mean, it sounds like a contradiction uh, when you deal with security. I mean, um, is that a contradiction or not? Because, I mean, I, I, I'm the first thing, and now I'm being, a, you could say, somebody from the general public. Mm -hmm. if, um, if you're going to make very transparent how your technology works, then mm -hmm. the guys can actually abuse that. Um, yes, that's always a, that's always a risk. It depends on what level of transparency you have. But I think trust and transparency is uh, the the idea behind it is that the public understand that the tools that are being used have been created in a certain way that is striving towards fairness, right? So if you're using an analysis tool that is driven by, by AI, that it was actually vetted for all of the different things that, let's say, uh, the European European Union uh, looks for in their tools uh, for AI. So we're talking about, you know, robustness and um, and transparency, explainability, uh, lack of bias. Obviously, all of these things are not perfect, and that's kind of one of the reasons why the AI Act was introduced, not just for security, but in general. Um, but that is the ultimate goal that we understand that, for instance, uh, a, a machine is taking a decision for these reasons. This is the way it was designed. This is the way the data that was fed into the machine was annotated and qualified and vetted, um, that the algorithms uh, at least strive to lack uh, bias or completely debiased, which is, is sometimes a little bit more difficult when we're talking to, about larger um, uh, AI models. But that is actually the goal. And also when we think about trust, it's in transparency, it's also a little bit more lofty. It's just basically telling people what we're doing, right? That that AI innovators are doing these things, that police are doing these things without going into specific details. Obviously, when, when things are highly sensitive, that doesn't make a, a lot of sense. It is counterproductive, as you said, but that, that's the goal. Okay. Now, you just mentioned, like, we all know AI making decisions. Um, what's then your take on uh, accountability? Yes, uh, there is. Uh, there has to be accountability. That's actually one of the, the main pillars of, of ethical AI development. That's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration always. So there's accountability. There's always the debate around who is actually accountable. For instance, is it the, the person that is doing the research, the person you can go way back into the process. Like, was it the person that annotated the data or was it the person that chose the data set? Was it the person that developed this technology or is it the actual, let's say security agency that's using it? So these are all kind of philosophical questions. And I think actually, like, like I mentioned before that these are things that um, a lot of people have been discussing in the context of the introduction of the AI Act, when people uh, talk about it, at first people are like, oh, well, this is going to stifle the ability to um, innovate, but mm -hmm. actually that's not the case. This is giving kind of the, let's say the guardrails 
for how to do this in the right way. Okay. Um, so how then you, in your opinion, can we turn the philosophical questions into more concrete questions? Because at the end of the day, we are already using technology, so mm -hmm. it should not, it, we should go beyond the, the philosophical discussion. Yeah, I think one thing is to really ground it in use cases. Um, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of this and still now about like, what is the definition of AI and what is high risk AI and what, you know, what trade-offs need to be made. And I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about um, the fact that it seems like AI has been painted with this very broad brush, right? That everything, you know, everything falls under the, the, the uh, umbrella of AI and the use cases haven't been fully explored. So the idea is not that AI is, you know, what we need to kind of police, we need to police the actual use cases. So you could have the same technology doing two different things in the area of security. And one of those things is maybe not acceptable. And the other thing is absolutely necessary for things like, you know, counterterrorism or for keeping children safe or whatever. Um, so we really need to ground it in the use cases. And then when we look at these use cases, take a careful look at how these methods are actually being developed, how they're working, how they're being deployed, and also uh, educating. That was kind of one of the getting back to the, the triangulation or the perfect combination of stakeholders, educating the people who will be using that. Because I, in some cases, I've seen this is more in the past and more in the U.S., um, cases of AI tools being deployed by police officers that really don't understand how the decisions that they're taking um, aren't aren't necessarily, uh, they shouldn't be autonomous. They should never be autonomous uh, decisions. They should be a human in the loop decision. AI should be helping them take decisions maybe, but they shouldn't be trusting it completely because AI is not perfect. So these types of conversations, I think. Great. Uh, you actually give us a great insight in how we could uh, start to deal with accountability in a digital age, look at the use cases and uh, focus on that and not on the conceptual side. Right. And that's a, a, a good insight to share with the audience. Um, now, you have a global perspective. Do you see uh, differences uh, in different regions in the world, how we deal with this? Yeah, I see different maybe visions. Yeah. Um, and when I've seen it crystallize has been with yeah. the introduction of the AI Act, because then everybody starts talking about what the differences are between the European vision versus the American vision versus the Asian vision. Um, one thing that, uh, in speaking with Asian colleagues, for instance, uh, have told me is that okay, well, you guys are regulating from a place of fear and we mm -hmm. regulate from a place of optimism. So we believe that AI is going to help us accomplish a lot of things and you all are fearful of what uh, can be accomplished with AI. So it's, I'm, I'm not saying that I agree with that. I actually don't, um, but there is definitely a cultural difference. And um, I think the US is also a little bit more, um, moving in the direction of not so much uh, looking more at the benefits versus the the potential pitfalls although they just introduced some some new legislation uh, this week i think uh related to to ai it's nothing like our ai act here mm -hmm. in europe but i think it does uh, cultural there are cultural differences for sure um in asia obviously they've been using ai technologies for everyday things before uh, other other regions have um so maybe they're more comfortable with uh, kind of AI creeping into their everyday lives and that makes them have a different vision of it. So I think that there are definitely cultural differences. 
Okay, and can they live side by side in the globe as, uh, as far as you're concerned? Or is this something we need to uh, look at how we can? I think they should. Actually, I was speaking at a conference earlier this year with, I think he's the, the head of innovation for uh, South Korea. Mm -hmm. And he was also talking about this vision that they have of yes, regulation, but from, you know, from the, the potential versus uh, the dangers and pitfalls and definitely with an ethical focus. And we talked about the fact that none of this can really work if we don't work together. So we need to come together on what our common values are. Obviously, we have lots of differences between between regions, but, you know, AI is global because the world is global and the internet is global. So we need to find ways, I think, at, at the very top level to have policymakers uh, prioritize working together to see how we can do this. Okay, that brings up, uh, I mean, uh, a, a, a couple of questions and thoughts I have. I'd like to ask your opinion on that. Sure. Um, one of the big issues with uh, fast developing technology is that the legal and regulatory framework cannot keep up with that. So it, it creates a gap. That's an accountability gap. Yes. So when we pursue um, a global discussion, uh, you're going to lag uh, policy development uh, because of how fast technology is going. So how do we deal with that situation then? We need to become faster in policy development i think I, to be perfectly honest that's the, that that is the case and that's been uh something that's come up a lot here because when the ai act for instance it's what i know the most about when it was being developed people were already saying but why why are we talking about this specific thing when this specific thing has been on the market for the past 10 years right so i think that's really the only way and the only way to do that is to kind of push push on our policymakers to make sure that they understand something that's important to the public i think one thing that the the european parliament has said many times is like the ai act did not didn't kind of just emerge organic uh, didn't emerge out of nowhere it emerged organically from a public you know preoccupation or or yeah. worry or concern about what's happening with AI. So if we have the ability to push policymakers to start thinking about these things, and it's been proven that we do, then we need to actually push them towards uh, moving faster on this because otherwise, the as you mentioned, the policies will become obsolete as the technology kind of just shoots forward. Yeah. Um, so one of the solutions I hear you saying between the lines is we need to educate uh, policymakers uh, to make them understand we need to move faster. Yes. Um, to what extent is this also a 21st century issue which requires 21st century solutions? So are, can you envision, envision additional and different solutions for governance next to policy development? Hmm. I don't know. I think that maybe in I don't envision a, a different solution because I think it's hard to change the way policies are made. But I do think that there could be more of a you know private uh, collaboration with with policymakers, for instance, or more of just bringing different stakeholders or some sort of a framework that would get them uh, kind of like you said, more knowledge, basically more knowledge in, in terms of this. One thing that uh, I saw getting back to kind of cultural issues is, um, okay, here in Europe, policymakers are policymakers. And uh, what I've heard in, in Asia is that, for instance, in some uh, larger countries, 
a lot of the policymakers are actually engineers or scientists or people that are super close to the technology. So in their uh, expertise, they have the ability to see both sides of things. And that's not necessarily the case here. So maybe it is a larger engagement with the scientific community, with the development community, with the general public in terms of what their concerns are. And perhaps that might be the way, but there doesn't exist as far as I know, a framework for that right now. It's kind of in a silo. Okay. Hey, the good insights. Um, in your opinion, what are the biggest threats for accountability today? For accountability, um, I think, to be perfectly honest, AI development in terms of the, the methods that we're using right now, not everything is super explainable. Uh, not everything, you can't uh, take a ton of time to explain every thing that's happening in a model that has hundreds of millions of parameters in it. That's really not something that you can do. And that ties into accountability, right? Because uh, if you want to be accountable, you have to be able to explain also the way things are done, the way decisions are made. Uh, if problems occur, which is one of the main <laughs> focuses of, of why accountability yeah. is important, you need to be able to rectify those problems. So I think that the very nature of the way uh, AI models are being built is perhaps the biggest um, kind of obstacle to to accountability. I don't think it is the um, the reluctance to be or the resistance to be accountable because I think that most of us are we want to be accountable. We want to be responsible for what we're doing. I don't think that there are the users like let's say the the stakeholders that are deploying these types of technologies. I don't think that they are looking for problems and they don't want to they want to get everything right too. But it it, it is it is a challenge. Okay. Uh, hey, thanks for that, uh, Jennifer. Now, um, given your background, given your role, uh, I'm also assuming you work with Unicree, the UN Agency for Crime Prevention. Yes. And how do they take uh, AI on board? Uh, Unicree, I think, well, Unicree is a research institute focused on, um, focused on crime and mm -hmm. uh, part of the UN. And what they have been doing, which has been, in my opinion, very um, uh, pioneering, is looking at all the different ways that AI can be used for certain uh, sectors of, from, let's say, use cases uh, of crime, uh, particularly in the area of terrorism, and what the kind of ethical slash, um, yeah, I guess, uh, human rights, fundamental rights uh, implications might be of that. So with uh with their working groups they have been focusing on things like social network analysis um we okay. were on a panel a couple of months ago about this so network analysis for instance is something that's really important uh for understanding things like the spread of disinformation um the way terrorist groups operate online or the way they communicate very very powerful but at the same time has some implications in terms of uh, ethics and privacy because obviously you're looking at users. And while um, on the one hand we have, uh, it's public data because mm -hmm. everything on the internet that has been, that you publish is quote unquote public data, it's actually not actually public data. So that's an example of some of the areas that I've been looking at uh, with them and the, the research that they're doing, but they're doing a really great job uh, at pushing this forward. I also know that they are uh, currently focused on looking at threats in the metaverse as well, uh, particularly okay. around uh, the protection of children. Okay, can you give examples of what kind of uh, threats? I mean, the, the metaverse, it's 
uh, uh, I think we, we've just started to see the its its use uh, yeah. on, on a global spills scale. So, uh, what are uh, emerging threats uh, the metaverse uh, could uh, could have, which we need to think sure. about? So, as you mentioned, the metaverse is we're just starting to see its, yeah. its actual applicability in, in every single uh, part of our lives. So, I think that the meta we should consider the metaverse the way we considered the internet at the beginning, right? So, when we had the internet back in the early 90s, uh, everybody was very excited about it being a space for entertainment, for commerce, for all the different things that we now know and love it for, right? But it also became a space for a lot of nefarious activity, which we, we you're very well aware of. Um, so it can be all of that, but exponentially worse. So um, what we envision right now is uh, a space where something like toxic behavior can become incredibly more toxic. So if you are, for instance, being victimized by someone, uh, currently you can be victimized by someone's texts or you know uh, messages imagine that being uh, an avatar that can actually attack you in, in, in person. Um, there are lots of other different things that we can imagine, for instance, and actually this has already been something that's been studied, um, the, the ability to train people for terrorist attacks or to radicalize someone in person. Like, so for instance, instead of sending them tweets and messages online, you could also say, okay, well, we'll, we'll create a hologram or an avatar of some you know, terrorist, an Osama bin Laden, and revive that person and have him radicalizing people. Uh, these types of situations that make everything that we are already dealing with, that's already still hard to deal with, uh, that much harder, right? And then on the technical side, it's not just what we're dealing with now, it's Oh, it's a completely different area because we're talking about uh, other types of data, behavioral data that'll be coming in through these types of uh, uh, scenarios. It's not just, so now you might be scanning the internet looking for terrorist related content, right? In this case, you're going to be in a situation where you have uh, not that, not just uh, tweets or, you know, messages to analyze. You're going to have to analyze all sorts of different types of multi multimedia data. And nobody really knows what that's going to look like. The, another part of that is the fact that nobody knows who was going to own these spaces, right? So uh, same with the internet. Nobody really, it didn't belong to anybody. It still kind of doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to some major players, you could say. And in the metaverse, obviously Meta has, yeah. Meta the company has staked out its place, but Meta won't be the only ones. So maybe Meta will cooperate with, with um, you know, security agencies to make sure that these things don't happen. But what if there's another company that comes online that creates a space that's highly popular and all of these things are happening, it'll be happening maybe in a, in a vacuum. So I think the bottom line is that the threats that we already face on the regular internet already are too much for what we have. So we need to be thinking about what we'll do, even though the space has not been defined. Yeah, that, that, that's my take on uh, listening to your uh, prediction of what's going to happen. Uh, we really need much more education and make people realize, policymakers, hey, uh, you've just come to understand what the current internet is doing. Look what's right. going to come uh, very soon our way, and you really need to prepare for this. Right, right. Even if you don't know, like, no. If, even if we don't have all the answers, because people will ask all the time, well, what, do you, what are you actually going to be analyzing? What's actually, where are the space? We don't know that. 
we need to build up groups who are already thinking about potential risks and uh, also identify the risks that are already emerging. So the metaverse is not new. Uh, there are metaverse spaces and there are metaverse spaces where bad things are happening now. So we can start there. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, last couple of questions, Jennifer. Uh, what's the low-hanging fruit in this case? In the metaverse or in... in oh, just... in, in general about uh, uh, AI... Uh, well, you you can answer both uh, uh, in general uh, metaphors. What's mm -hmm. the low hanging fruit? What should we do be doing? I think the low hanging fruit is AI adoption. I mean that is very broad, but um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is the fact that um, okay, AI is being used. For instance, if you talk about online spaces, AI is being used by large companies to do their own content moderation. So Facebook has their you know massive AI teams. They have uh, AI researchers who are working on these types of things, but clearly the problem is not solved there and it's not solved on many other platforms. So AI adoption in general by, uh, by basically by security agencies in order to be able to, to kind of get these threats uh, understood and mitigated without the help of, of these large companies would be something that I would, I would recommend. Um, there isn't a lot of uh, massive AI ad adoption in, in this sense. Um, there may be many reasons why. It could be that people don't trust it. People are afraid of accountability issues. Um, people uh, don't want to engage maybe with the private sector because that's another thing. So a lot of these solutions are being developed by the private sector. Maybe that's not something that uh, security agencies are, are comfortable doing. But I do think that that would be just trying, trying to use AI for for mitigating these types of threats um, because it's not currently happening as much as it could. Got that. Okay. So trust each other more to collaboratively work on the solutions which are needed for this new world. Exactly. Last question. Describe your ideal world. <laughs> My ideal world in this context? Yes. Would be, uh, it would put me out of business, but it would be a world without online harms and toxicity and without online terrorism, actually, without any kind of terrorism. Um, but I think if it, that can't be achieved, my online, my my ideal world would be a world in which AI is employed for the good of all of us, for, for basically uh, ridding the internet of these types of things. Okay. And that everybody can understand and benefit from it, and that there wouldn't be any sort of <laughs> any any sort of a trade off when it what comes to accountability and ethics that we would get it right all the time. But that's a hard thing to do. It's it's what we will strive for, but it's a hard thing to do. Well, it's something we can do together, and I think once we start to collaborate uh, on a global scale together, we will get there eventually. We have to. Yes. Yes. Okay. Indeed. Okay. Hey, Jennifer, uh, my pleasure and honor to talk to you uh, for and for sharing your insights on uh, possible ways to deal with uh, accountability in the digital age. Thank uh, you so much. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you very much.